Welcome to the Leadership Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jono White. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Clarity. We are an Australian-based consultancy that works with leaders around the world, and our passion is to invest in people to become everything they're meant to be in order to fill the world with healthy organizations that people love to work for and customers line up to buy from. The goal of this podcast is to invest in you and your leadership. If you're just joining us for the first time, then feel free to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there. The most popular being our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from around the world in all different sectors give their in-depth answers on leadership, what books they love, what they found most challenging, uh, the most meaningful stories, how they how they structure their time through the day. That's free, so go and check it out. And we'd love to interview you about your leadership. I believe you have advice from your experience, your context, and your life so far that is important and can help other leaders. It's also a great way to give back. It's free to get involved, and you can do so by going to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest, or just Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form that pops up. We have a free resource for you on our website. It's called Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook. It has interviews with 10 world-class leaders, and you can go to consultclarity.org. It's right at the top and get that today. Uh, we also have a daily email that we send out to over 15,000 leaders, and that email contains the highlights, our best content from our podcasts, our blog, uh, my book, uh, the books that we're loving that are out there about leadership, It's also the best way to get access to our masterclasses and workshops before anyone else. And there's also exclusive and limited uh, special options just for subscribers. And you can subscribe by going to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe. Now, my gift to you is to work incredibly hard to provide the best leadership content I can to invest in you and your leadership. So if you're finding our content helpful, if you find this podcast helpful, then your gift to me uh, could be this. If you if you do find it helpful, then write a review or rate our content and make sure you subscribe or follow. I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is. It really does help us to get the word out there so we can invest in more leaders to become everything they're meant to be. It also means a lot to me personally when people like you and people in our community share our content on social media. So if you do that, then please do look for me, Jono White, to tag me and look to tag Clarity uh, on whatever platform you're on. And our team, including me, I'm always looking to see when people have mentioned us so that I can engage with you and also we look at sharing content. So if you if you write something about something we've done, there's also a good chance we'll share that with our followers. So if you could do that, that is a massive, massive help as we try to invest in as many leaders as we can around the world. Last of all, you can check out my book about how to deal with difficult people even if you hate conflict. It's called Step Up or Step Out. It's available on Amazon. You can just look up Step Up or Step Out John O'White or you can go to store.consultclarity.org forward slash book and check it out there. I 
have coached leader after leader after leader and in more than 50% of the sessions, this topic comes up. How do I deal with this person? I'm finding it really difficult and, and I just wanna find a way that doesn't blow up to do a really, just to have a difficult conversation, to lead them better. How do I do that? There's a three-step process that I outline in this book that I believe can help you. Okay, let's get into today's episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 21 of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Today's guest is Joseph Aristone. Uh, Joe is the Executive Vice President and Head of Leasing at Preet. And Preet is the Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust. Uh, he's worked there since 1994. Joe's responsible for overseeing the leasing function for the company's portfolio of 24 malls, accounting for approximately $218 million in net operating income. In this capacity, Joe manages a staff of 22, including four regional VPs and 14 leasing representatives. Joe is responsible for establishing the vision, uh, the vision, excuse me, and executing on the strategic direction for each mall, including tenant merchant mix and financial deliverables. Prior to assuming this role, Joe was the VP of Big Box and Outparcel Leasing, where he completed in excess of 2 million square feet of transactions with national tenants, including Coles, uh, PetSmart, Best Buy, Bed Bath & Beyond, Dick Sporting Goods, Ross, Dress for Less, Marshalls, Eastern Mountain Sports, Barnes & Noble, Staples, Olive Garden, P.F. Chang's, California Pizza, Kitchen, and Capital Grill. Joe led the leasing integration team during a major merger of two multi-billion dollar publicly traded companies, which resulted in the creation of the Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust. Uh, Joe also has an extensive background and, and has done a lot of work, not only uh, with landlord representation of multiple office buildings in the Philadelphia market, but also has been very involved in a number of civic-oriented activities. Uh, he's an active volunteer for a number of business advocacy groups, including serving as vice chair for the Greater Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce's membership drive and being appointed and serving on Moorestown uh, Moorestown Council Economic Development Advisory Council, New Jersey Board of Trustees for Moorestown Education Foundation and affiliate of the Moorestown Board of Education. And Joe is also on the editorial advisory board for SJ Magazine. And he is a graduate of Dickinson College in Carlisle, Philadelphia. Well, Joe, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to, to join you. So appreciate the opportunity. I, uh, I have so many questions because I find what you do really fascinating. And I think um, one thing I really want to ask about is the merger at, at, at one point. And so uh, that's something that just uh, just now has sort of piqued my interest. But first, give us a little bit of the context of Preet, um, you know, the Pennsylvania sure. Real Estate Investment Trust, and also what it, what it looks like for, you know, your role, Executive Vice President and Head of Leasing, a bit of a window into that role. Absolutely, sure. So the most of the malls in the United States are owned by uh, public companies, um, really driven by the fact that malls are large properties that require a lot of capital to run and operate. And so probably going back about 20 or so years ago, a lot of the malls got purchased up by large public companies. And Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust is a public REIT that we happen to specialize in the mall space. We have have been and have and do own other product classes, but for the most part, we're in the enclosed mall arena. 
it's obviously been a space that's been, you know, challenging in a lot of ways. Pandemic certainly created some challenges, although later we can talk about how we've overcome some of those. But for the most part, I think it's an exciting time to be in this space because it's really a disruption period. And I think that innovation and creativity and, you know, energy can kind of move you into a position of, um, out, you know, being an outlier in, in a period where you could potentially have some hardships. And so um, in terms of what I do for the company, so we, as I mentioned, are a public REIT. We've been around since 1960, and I've been with the company for about 25 or so years. And my prim- primary role and principal role has been running the transactional platform for the company. So anything that pertains to leasing, so anything, if you think about a, a mall or a retail property, when you walk into a tenant space, those tenant spaces, especially in a, in a mall environment, are um, part of a community, and that community is um, tenanted. Um, the, the bigger landlord is what Preet does. We own the bricks and mortar, and the tenants are the retailers. And so my team is it identifies and sources the various retailers, and we also work to create kind of a space making and work to create a merchandising mix so that when you go to a property, you have this experience. That's a combination of food and shopping and entertainment. And that's essentially what we do. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. That's a great explanation. And so tell us about your story. What are some of the moments and you can feel free to go back as far as you want, even, you know, even to childhood, if you'd like, what are some of the stories that really shaped you becoming the leader you are today? Yeah, so backstory is I kind of grew up in the Philadelphia area um, with the exception of living in Italy for a year and, um, for the most part, I've spent most of my time in the mid-Atlantic region, you know, specifically right outside of Philadelphia. Uh, I went to college in Pennsylvania to a liberal arts college, graduated thinking that I was going to pursue a, a career in legal. I was going to, you know, go to law school and I thought that would be like what I gravitated to. And after I graduated from uh, undergraduate school in the United States, you go to college for four years. And then if you want to go to law school, you have a th- typically a three-year endeavor. Before I kind of went to law school, I decided I need to kind of make a few dollars to kind of, you know, take some burden off my parents who helped me with college. And I got a job working in for a commercial real estate company, and they had a uh, training program. And in the training program, they had different departments that you would basically essentially spend some time in. So I spent time in accounting, and I spent time in, you know, uh, finance, and I spent time in, you know, property management, and I spent time in the brokerage world. And then, long story short, when I got to the rotation involved the legal department. Um, I really found it to be candid with you, just completely uh, uninteresting to me. It was boring and very, you know, a lot of reading and a lot of like you know, narratives about contracts and reading leases after leases and giving summaries. And I remember talking to the guy that headed up the department, who was a lawyer, and I said, "So is this what real, is this what like real estate law is?" He's like, yeah, "Pretty much. <laughs> it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of uh, reading, and it just wasn't really suited for my personality at the time." And when I remember when I had my opportunity to kind of work in the brokerage group, it was a transactional environment where the brokers were entertaining and they were, you know, showing spaces and they were trying to make matchmaker between buyers and sellers. And it was a very fast paced environment. And I kind of knew immediately that I found my future. And so that kind of moved my career into a different direction. And I spent four or five years with that company. And and then when the opportunity presented itself at the company I'm with now, I kind of jumped on board uh, again at a kind of a low level in the organization, but got my foot in the door and worked my way up to the point where I ultimately was able to position myself as, you know, one of the senior leaders. And now I'm, you know, one of the four or five or so executive vice presidents that really helped run the organization with our CEO. Yeah, that's, uh, I love that story. And I love the, 
I guess the clarity you had when you were when you were there working uh, towards initially towards law, and you just realized, no, this uh, this this isn't for me. Are there any moments that really come to mind from your career so far where you you remember how a leader dealt with a situation, or you remember? yourself dropping the ball in something and just having a big learning uh, or it might be just uh, just watching someone else and going oh wow I just I think the way they did that is probably not uh, that's not how I want to lead any any sort of moments uh, that come to mind that have really shaped you well I'll, I'll give you one from a personal perspective and I'll, I'll kind of think about a few that are more of an op- of point of observation so in in commercial real estate at least when you when you move directly into that space you really start out um, in a transactional platform where you're kind of charged with basically doing deals. So yeah. finding tenants, negotiating deals, and you know, and, and the company benefits from that, and you basically get paid, you know, in different your different forms of compensation are pegged to that performance, right? Whether it's a direct deal compensation or whether it's for a number of deals over a period of time or a yearly bonus. And so I did that um, and you know, learned very early on early on that I was good at it. That I had a knack for it. I just and I was uh, willing to put the time and effort and energy into it. I always found that my background allowed my allowed me to because I started at a kind of a low level and learned different parts of the organization and just in the real estate commercial industry in general. That I was always well equipped with information, and I always found that the more informed you are, the better you are at sales. Right? It just kind of makes sense that if you have knowledge and you can kind of you know have a uh, you know, convincing and compelling discussion with the, whoever it is, whatever sales you're selling. If you can say this is the ben- selling benefit, this is the why this would be a good fit for you, or why this would potentially be an opportunity for you to be successful, that you can find yourself to be, you know, in a position to kind of close a lot of transactions. So, lo and behold, I closed a lot of transactions, became you know one of the top producers in our organization. And as you know, as as things progressed, the company was scaling up, and we were growing, and we were. You know, acquiring other companies, and my boss at the time, who is now the CEO, but he was the president at the time, kind of tapped me on the shoulder and he said, "I think it's time for you to kind of lead a team and move from being more of a single-purpose transactional person to be more of a team leader." And um, I got to tell you, that was an extremely hard thing for me to do because I immediately went from being responsible for being a deal maker, where I was like, I was concerned about my budget, you know, my properties, my transactions. You know what the things that I was going to kind of get done to be in this kind of player coach, and it was a it was a interesting pivot in my career because um, I, I was frustrated at first and kind of and for initially I thought like this isn't going to work this isn't really going to be a good fit for me long term I'm either going to have to go back into a being a transactional person that's here or I'm going to do it somewhere else because I just don't want to you know leading people and kind of running an organization from the standpoint of managing other people is incredibly difficult and very different from what I did before. But um, what, what I learned from it was that I, I, I had a lot of blind spots and um, I, had, I, I lacked in kind of empathy. And it's interesting because people have always said to me, I never really kind of made the connection, but I'll make, I made the connection like at that point. I remember like thinking back to when sometimes great players aren't great coaches, right? I mean, it's, it's the kind of the, mm. it's almost like a difficult thing to do because a lot of times to, in American sports, you'll see like an incredible hockey player, football player, and they'll, you know, they'll get cajoled into a, into a position of coaching and they're, they suck at coaching. Yeah. And part of it is because it's very difficult when you're, when you excel at a high level to, um, coach people at that same level, because you have expectations 
that they're going to immediately be able to perform at your level. And it's a point of frustration for, for both, right? So I would get frustrated yeah. with my team because if they weren't closing deals, I found myself jumping in and getting real two hands on, then they would get frustrated because they didn't, they didn't have the learning curve they needed. And it was just a very difficult and choppy time. And what I did at that time was I spent an incredible amount of time really understanding what I was lacking to be a good you know, leader and coach and yes. what I would need to do to develop those skills. And it started with something as simple as empathy. I really had to kind of learn that, okay, Tom, you know, Tom Jones and, you know, John Smith, they're not as good as I am right now, um, you know, for various reasons. What can I do to help them become as good as me? Mm. Like, what, where are their blind spots? Like, what can I do to kind of, because if I, if I, you know, it's the old adage, teach them to fish um, as opposed to fishing for them. And so I, I spent probably the better part of a year or so just like breaking down my, my thinking on how I was going about in my approach and just kind of retooling my mind. And as a result of that, I spent, I read like almost every book you could read on coaching, every book you could read on leadership, every book you could read on, on, you know, sales management. And I ended up ultimately becoming very, very good at what I do, but through a lot of trials and tribulations. And I, I got to be honest with you, John, there were many times when I thought that this isn't for me. I, I don't want to be in this position. I'm going to just, you know, have a pathway towards more of a direct, direct sales role. And, um, that was probably, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. Yeah, wow. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And I remember being on a coaching call with a leader from New Zealand one time who um, we connect, we'd connected and we were in the first session. And really, when I said, what, what are you wrestling with? And, and, um, and his question was, I just don't know if, if I should be a leader. I'm thinking about going back to a role where I do that individual contribution. And... Um, and what I loved about that conversation is as we as we delved into it, and I said this to him, I said, you know, you're, the fact that you're wrestling with this so much means you have to be a leader. Like we need leaders who care that they have blind spots, who wrestle with things and actually are willing to put in the effort. That doesn't rule you out. That actually sets you up like that. In my opinion, that's often what great leaders have is they've got that awareness of their blind spots. And, and so I love hearing, and he decided to, yeah. to uh, that was a big revelation for him. Yeah, I can do this. And he's, um, you know, now pursuing that and, and, and is pursuing leadership. But that for him was, uh, yeah, he was thinking the same thing. Maybe I should just go back to being an individual contributor because some of it he was finding challenging around the team dynamic and leading people. Well, you know, so individual, when you're an individual contributor, if you're in sales, I don't care what you're selling, but if you're good at it, you can make a lot of money. All right. And yeah. you can, you know, it comes with its own stress points. I'm not going to say it doesn't, but your stress points are usually overcome by performance. So yes. if I perform at a certain level, um, I'm going to be considered, you know, a key contributor to the organization and um, they're going to value my, my, they're going to value the value propositions. I bring in a lot of business. You guys are making money. I'm making money. And we're all happy. Um, and when you move that person into, into a, a kind of a sales management role, the thought process is, well, maybe you're going to make this person make 20 people as successful as he is. And now I'll have 20 good salespeople as opposed to just one. It doesn't yes. always work that way. In fact, no. I would say probably more often than not, it doesn't work. I would say more, more times than not, in the least that I've seen, if you don't invest the time, energy, and find the right resources to help you scale. And, you know, I was fortunate in that I had a really good uh, mentor and a really good boss at the time who knew that I could do it. And wouldn't let me go back to my old role. He kind of like said, okay, if you want to do what you were doing before, you're going to have to do it elsewhere because he was kind of <laughs> trying to, 
you know, almost forced me into this position of leadership. And look, he was right because ultimately I scaled up and I kind of retold the team and I hired a lot of great people that are with us now and they're incredibly successful and we've done very well. And, you know, even in incredibly disruptive times, we've been able to secure some of the, you know, best deals and tenants in the platform. So, wow. so I think, you know, ultimately that was, that was definitely a moment of leadership enlightenment, if you will. Yeah, I wonder if there were any if there are any examples that come to mind for you of specific situations where you look back and think, you know, whether it's a head in your hands moment of like, oh, I can't believe how much empathy I didn't show there, or maybe it's the flip side. Maybe you after you discovered this, you had a really big win where you knew empathy was a blind spot and you you read some great uh, literature on on how to listen and and you felt like you really finally the penny really dropped for you and, and you, when you saw someone and I feel really heard or did, are there any specific examples that come to mind from that journey where you, well, it's, it, it's not going to put me in the best light to kind of, uh, you know, to really, but we're, I guess we're, we're in a quiet little uh, podcast world where we can just have this conversation between us. Right. But I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you a story. Yeah. There's no one listening. Uh, where, yeah, right. uh, exactly. There've probably got millions <laughs> of people in Australia listening to this. So I'll tell you that in, in, so one of the things that I would do, um, at, when I was again, new to the role is that, um, I had an office and I had two chairs in the office and, you know, uh, as I became, you know, this new, newly appointed leader of, of this lease of the sales team, where I had a group of, I don't know, eight or so people that worked for me at the time, I was running a unit. I was running one of the groups in, in the organization and, um, it was, it was not uncommon for other sales members to come to my office and want to have a conversation with me about a deal they're working on or a transaction they're pursuing. And I was very quick with them. And I remember I would find myself putting, I would put things on my chairs in my office because I didn't want people to sit in my office because I found <laughs> that when they sat in my office, they would take up an inordinate amount of time, right? Again, I was brand new to this role. I mean, you have to remember. No, I was that's still, right. no this is still, great. This is great. It's I appreciate you sharing this. I, and it doesn't put you in a bad light. I, I honestly, yeah. You know, it's it's well, it's so, um, so, but it's I remember. Great. So what I would, what I would do is I would put these like files on my on my on my uh, chair, so people and so people would be uncomfortable sitting in there because they have to move something, right? And so they would come to my door and they would stand in my door, and I thought, okay, if I can't solve this problem in a in a standing at my door scenario, there you know, there's got to be a better way. You know, I just thought that this could be a quick solution. So people would come to my door and they would knock on my door and I would say, hey, what's going on? They'd say, hey, I'm working on this transaction with such tenant and, you know, I, I think I'd like to go in this path or that path. And now you have to remember, I was more experienced than most of these people and I had done it at a much higher level and I did it at much more higher productivity. And so I knew what was going to be around the turn, right? Like I knew what the end game was going to be. And so yeah. often I would process that information pretty quickly and I would say, let's say for lack Tom Jones, I'll make up a name. Tom Jones yeah. would knock on my door and he'd say, hey, I was thinking about this deal and here's where I want to go with it. Now think about it for a few seconds and out of pure like arrogance, I would just say, Hey Tom, I appreciate your point of view on that, but that's not what we're going to do. We're going to go in this direction. So let's just, let's just go there. And, and I would go back to whatever I was doing. Right. And Tom Jones would still be standing in my doorway you know, thinking about, okay, I can't sit down because he has filing cabinets on his chairs. And, and what I learned was that I was, I was, I was, I was arrogant. I was, I was uh, short with people. I didn't give them the time of day. I didn't hear them out. I didn't listen to their perspective on things. I didn't give them, you know, and what I learned is that, you know, Tom might've had a better way of doing this transaction than I did. Tom yeah. might've had a good idea if I'd listened to him. And so I learned that by just being short and, and just right, not giving these people an opportunity to kind of express their thoughts and beliefs, they came to resent me. 
um, as anybody would, as I would. And so <laughs> I kind of thought about it after, you know, after doing this for a few months and, you know, I had multiple conversations with my boss and, and he said, look, that's not what leadership and management is about. You know, you have to like get the time to kind of invest in your people and, yeah. you know, maybe you don't have the right people and that's fine. You can make changes in your staff, but you have to give them an opportunity and you have to give them an opportunity. And then he also taught me something that I, that he taught me as well. And he said, people are going to make mistakes, man, let them. Yeah. You know, let them make, don't, don't, don't like solve every problem for them. Let, let, don't let them make critical mistakes that hurt the organization, but let them make learning mistakes. And if they learn from those mistakes, they'll be 10 times better. And so that was, that's a good, probably example of something specific that, that I learned in that kind of, in the fire, from the fire, fire, in, from the fire and frying pan into the fire experience. <laughs> and, um, and I learned a lot, I learned a lot from it. I really did. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. And you know what? You're not alone in doing that. And I I guarantee you there's some listener somewhere who's just jumped up off their work chair and gone and moved some things off the chair in their office that they had uh, done the same thing. Uh, because I think, I, you know, I've thought, I, I was just thinking of how I've done things that are similar in terms of when you have uh, your people and you don't really want to have to go and, um, and have another conversation about something that that's going on. And so you sort of pick another place where you can walk into where you just know you're not going to have to have those conversations. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a similar thing and, and realizing actually that is, that is leadership, you know, opening up the chair and, and, and actually, uh, and I think the hard part, which you sort of explained is that's, you know, 80, 90% of the time, maybe for you in the, with your experience and with um, some of the team coming in and being junior or some of them maybe eventually not being the right fit, it could be 95% of the time you're going to be right. And that's what's hard is when so often you're the one who's going to be right, that in some ways makes it harder. So the better you are as an individual contributor, sometimes the more challenging it is to step into that leadership role because what you have to do is... Um, zip your zip your lip and realize like you did realize wait a second they could have a better way of doing it and even if they don't and it's not critical to the organization let them let them um, have a go because they're going to learn from that and then exactly maybe right. I share some advice um, or you know it's exactly sort of right. down the you down the track so I think you got it yeah I that's definitely good. don't think you're alone in that I really appreciate you sharing that story Joe that's that's uh that's great in terms of your, if you look back on your journey so far as well, what would you do differently if you if you were, you know, because obviously you learn from all of these things. So it's not saying that you that you wouldn't want to have the learnings you've had, but if you ha if you knew what you know now, and you stepped into your first leadership role back then, what are some of the things that you'd focus on, really focus on, or do differently as a leader when you first stepped into leadership? So one, one of the things that, that I kind of um, have figured out along the way, and, and I think that ultimately this is something that I would encourage leaders to kind of do early on, is that when you're assessing your team um, in terms of if you inherit a team or if you're you know building a team, I always tell the guys that work for me, and I don't, I'm not going to say that I, I heard this quote from someone else. I, don't, I wish I could give the credit to the person that said it. Somebody told me early on in my career, they said, you know, tens hire tens and sevens hire twos. And um, I always wanted to have tens and surround myself by tens. And so if I inherited a team, um, I probably took too long to kind of get out the twos, right? I probably like, struggled too much with trying to get them to perform and get frustrated with them and so forth. And I would say that it didn't do them any good to be in an organization where they were flailing or not doing well. 
And so I'd say what, what I, now I have a very, uh, we have a very strong culture of accountability and I have a very senior team and I have a high performing team. And when I do make a change, I do it quickly. Right. I kind of, uh, kind of map out what responsibilities the person has. I give them all the tools and resources to kind of be successful. And if I don't get the success I need from that person in that particular role, um, I, I quickly, you know, make some decisions. And sometimes those decisions involve that person not being with the organization or not being in that role. And yeah. I've always found that now with the experience that I have and kind of making these position changes, if I'd had that experience early on, I probably could have saved, you know, a lot of angst for a lot of people, you know, including, including myself and including the people that are being put under pressure. Because sometimes you can put people under as much pressure as you want, as much accountability as they want, as you want. But if they don't have the skill set to perform at that particular task, you're just wasting their time and yours. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting reflection because I agree. And what I love about how you unpack that is that it's not just about the speed, but you are talking about having the having all the tools. You know, it's not about throwing people in there and watching them for two weeks and then saying, ah, no, you're not. It, it's about yeah. giving them everything you can, setting up accountability, clear expectations, and doing accountability well, and when it's not working, not drawing it out for a long time, but actually moving fast. And as much as it doesn't quite work universally, I think there is truth in that phrase, you know, slow to hire, quick to fire, because there is something about moving fast when when things aren't working, and but only in the context. Some people, I think, use that as an excuse for not having any accountability, any expectations, and then they decide they're not happy with someone. They go, oh, you know, quick to fire. And it's like, well, no, you didn't give them any tools. Uh, but you're right. Yeah. When, when you don't, that's a mistake too. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a poor leadership skill set too. If you, people don't, you have to give people an opportunity if you put them in a position, right? You have to give them the, yes. you have to give them the bandwidth. You have to give them the resources. You have to give them the support and you can't sabotage them, right? You have to let, set them up for success. And ultimately, um, I think when you turn people over, like I, I've, I don't have a high turnover rate in my department. We don't have a relative, you know, on a relative basis, I don't think we have a high turnover rate relative to our industry and our company. And I think yeah. that part of that is, yes, we do a good job on the front end hiring, but from this specifically in the group that I lead, we do a ton of due diligence on the front end, including, you know, mapping out the personalities of the people we hire, spending time with them, you know, bringing them in to kind of interface with our, our their peers that they'd be working with. I do a lot of background checks on them. And when we do make a hire, I do do everything. And I, I mean everything in our power to get, make them successful. And the team knows when I say the team, I work in a competitive environment and people want to be successful and they want to, obviously people are competitive. That's salespeople. They're competitive, yeah. but they, they understand that the competition amongst that team is that all, all the people on that team are successful. And yeah, when someone right. comes into our team and they fail and they don't work, it's a failure for the group. And they know that. I was like, you, you may think that if you bring, we bring somebody new in and, and they don't work out, that it's a reflection of that person just didn't work and blah, blah, blah. And it's a, okay, bad hire or whatever. It's a bad um, it's reflection on the group. And trust me on that. Because the better we bring somebody in and they succeed, we all succeed. And ultimately, we're trying to hit our numbers and make our goals. And it's a lot easier to do that with 16 people rowing in the same direction than 10 people rowing in the same direction. Yeah, you're right. I think... I think focusing on that start, the finding the right people and then what you do with them as they start onboarding them well, but everything in between as well, finding them between finding and onboarding is everything you mentioned, personality, spending time with them, 
it's almost for me the it's got to be for me top three things that leaders can and should invest time in because when you do need someone new there's you I always hear leaders talking about two years of nightmare they had with a person and but if you if you try to get them to to spend two hours at the front end with someone you know as part of a process they'll balk at it as as if it's ridiculous and or as if you know I don't have the time for that it's like don't you remember Bob <laughs> who got rushed yeah. in and it ended up being a nightmare for all involved for, you know, two years? Um, how about we avoid right. that? So I feel like that comes up a lot. Um, so, Joe, for you, what would you say to a leader? Say we got someone listening and they've taken over a team and they're really feeling like they, they've done everything, they've set up with the right tools, but they, they are getting the impression there's a couple of people who are who are twos they're, and they're looking at them going, I don't know if you're going to make it. I've, I've, they've given them chances. You know, they've done, they've been thorough or they've got a plan to be thorough. What advice would you give them on how to go about doing that? Well, if, if you're saying that you're at an end, you're at an end game conclusion where you've decided that this person's just not going to work and you've done all the, you know, you've done all the things to try to make this person successful and you just think it's going to work, I, I, my my opinion would be that you have to move on, right? And you have to do it in a way that's that's um, clear minded and that you're equitable in terms of how you do it. Um, and you explain, you know, like this is the reason that we're making a decision because you know you've been able, unable to kind of meet these expectations. And I always tell people, like, look, I've had this experience where I've kind of had people depart, and I often will say to them, listen, just because it didn't work here doesn't mean you can't be successful in some other organization or with some other company or in some other role. It's, mm-hmm. you shouldn't take it other than it didn't work here in this point in time. Right. And yeah, you know, we've done everything we can to make you successful. And, um, I wish that it had been a scenario because certainly we'd be better off if you were successful, but if you get to that point, if I heard you, Jono say that you got to if a team leader saying, well, this person's not going to make it, you have to pull the trigger, right? You have to, yeah. you have to make that decision. You have to kind of move the person out of the organization. You're not doing them any favors by carrying along, you know, if somebody's flailing and you can't get them to a performance role that's going to be complementary to what you're trying to do as a team, it's not going to work. And you're going to, and ultimately what you're going to do is pull other people down. And so yeah. I would say that you kind of isolate the, you know, the people and you just kind of move on it and do it. I'd say do it humanely, do it with dignity, you know, do it in a way that you think how you'd like to be handled in that situation, but, but do it. And are there any things that you, is, is there any sort of checklist off the top of your head and how you know that you've, you know, you've done enough at that point? Is there anything that you would be saying, well, if I've done this, this, and this, then I probably feel like that's fair. But if I haven't done those things, then that I should probably be doing that first before I make that decision. That's a great question. Um, I've certainly thought about that a lot in my career. Um, I think that that's part art, part science, right? The science part yeah. is the numbers. Um, you know, when you're in sales, you have performances. So our goal is to lease so much square footage, to bring in so much revenue. Here's our budget. You know, those are those are our goals, right? That's the science part. The art part is the nuances of the of the managing people, and that comes with experience. I think to a certain extent, um, I spend a lot of time. You know, when I'm when I'm doing either team leading team meetings or if I'm one on one or if I'm with my leadership team, I spend a lot of time probing. You know, like tell me about what's going on with this person's life. Tell me what's going on with this person's you know, motivations, tell me about, you know, yeah, are, are, are we, tell me about what they're working on, um, tell me about, you know, I have these like little 
kind of cliches that I've used. You know, one of them is the 80-20 rule. You know, people sometimes have a tendency, especially in the deal-making world, they'll spend 80% of their time on a, on a, a deal or a few deals that will make up 20% of their goal. Well, that's a that's a waste of time, man. You got to you got to you got to get out of that. <laughs> you got to focus your energies yes. on you know bringing in the business that's going to get you to your point of you know goal achievement, right? And so, I'd say that those are the things that I kind of think about. Um, and then I think about personality traits, and I think about chemistry, and I think about you know fits. And look, at the end of the day, I mean, it's not that we're not splitting atoms. I mean, it's not that complicated. We're selling a product and. We're doing it. I think we have a good product to sell. We have good assets that have, you know, very successful tenants. They are profitable, um, and the story can be, you know, replicated with with relative ease. Um, you know, my the reps that work for me are very informed. They know about, you know, they're super qualified to speak to what makes the property that they're pitching tenants in like a very good uh, environment for that tenant success, whether it's the employment yes. or the customers that come to the property, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that I, I'm very uh, attentive to is the person that's in that role and picking up the the modeling in terms of the pitch and how are they adapting it to their own? Because everybody's not going to be exactly the same way. I don't want everybody the same way. You know, John might pitch this way and Mary might pitch that way. That's fine. But at the end of the day, they should be able to have a, a really good foundation and fun and found in fundamentals that are accurate and reflective of what we're trying to sell. Right. And then they yeah, can adapt their right. own uses to it. And so those are all things that I think about, but I think it's art science. Um, mm. I, the art, the science part is pretty clear. The art part is experience, the nuances of understanding, you know, what's motivating somebody, what's making them tick. And, um, you know, like there have been situations where I've had people that are on the cusp where I've been thinking about making a cut and they've been able to turn around, they've become superstars, right? So you have to, you have to kind of, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a balancing act and you have to just be able to part, big part is experience. I've been doing it now for, I've been in the commercial real estate for 30 years and I've been around managing people for half that time. Yeah, true. Now that's, uh, there's some really good points that you mentioned there. Yeah. Wow. So I'm interested to know about the, um, about the merger. So tell me what was it like to be part of a merger of two such, you know, uh, you know, these massive organizations coming together in terms of what, what you guys do and what's on the books coming together into Preet, what was it like to be part of that part of that merger? Um, well, so that was really interesting um, and really kind of a, a, a learning experience for me. Um, so we at there was a point in time when Preet was a smaller organization and we were trying to grow the company and the scale to grow the company really kind of lent itself to kind of acquiring other companies or merging with other companies. And so we identified another mall company that was based in Western Pennsylvania. We were based obviously in Philadelphia, just for geography, for people that are kind of listening on the phone. It was Philadelphia is on the East coast of Pennsylvania. It's on the Eastern side of Pennsylvania. Um, and this other company we were acquiring was, was probably about th uh, five hours by car, but kind of in the Western side of the state. Um, but we just happened to both be in the mall business. And so we owned malls all over the country. Um, at the time we were probably about the same size. I mean, we were, you know, call it 20 or so malls and they were probably about the same. And, um, we, um, uh, decided to put the companies together, you know, our, our executive team identified this would be a good acquisition slash merger. And so we put the two companies together and Preet was the acquirer, but I was kind of look at it as yeah. a merger because we were kind of integrating a company. It was a peer in terms of size. And my goal and my job in that, in that uh, role was to really integrate the two leasing teams 
So I had the responsibility for putting these two sales cultures together um, because, you know, we obviously needed the scale of the entire leasing team to function um, because there were some benefits to scale of economy, maybe at higher levels in the organization and maybe some scales of economy mm -hmm. in um, duplicity and accounting and things like that. But the, but the sales team, which is the engine that drives the productivity, you really wanted to get the best of the, of, of the class in both companies. Mm. And so what I essentially did was I formed, now we hired some consultants that kind of helped us guide through this, but I quickly realized that if we just kind of tried to instill our culture onto the acquiry or merger organization, that it wouldn't work. If mm. I just kind of took the culture from the company that was merging with us, it wouldn't work. You know, companies kind of have these tendencies of knowing what they do and they think everyone thinks they do it best. And so yeah. I formed a committee that was a, basically a partnership of equal members from the acquiring company, equal members from our company. And I forced them into an environment where I said, we're going to, we're going to create a best in class protocol. And we're going to forget everything that we think is best in class. And we're going to literally come out of here after a few weeks and we're going to come up with a best in class process. And we're not going to think about names or people or titles or any of that stuff. That's going to be immaterial to us. We're literally going to start from the foundation. We're going to figure out what's the best way to do such and thus. What's the best mm -hmm. way to lease space, to show space, to, you know, pitch tenants, to merchandise our properties, all those things that are important to running our business. And no one here is going to think about their role, right? You know, because I may not be in a leadership role when these huge companies are merged together and maybe, and maybe you will be, right? But what we're going to do is we're going to come up with a best in class way of doing things and going forward, we're going to form a best in class committee. And so the best in class committee is going to exist outside of the merger. So once these two companies come together, that group is still going to you know, exist to make sure that we're doing what's in the best in class. And I, and I told the people in that group, because I learned this you know, early on, is that when you think about the watershed of decision-making and a water flow, yeah. if you think about what's in the, the organization's best interest first, and then you think about what's in the, you know, for our particular scenario, it's properties. So you think about what's in the property's best interest second, and then you get down somewhere pretty far down low on the list of what's in the individual's best interest, you'll make the right decisions. And ultimately, mm -hmm. if you make the right decisions for the organization, you'll make the right decisions for yourself. Yeah, that's great. And so actually having that meeting and forming that committee where you were able to, I guess, really transparently go through some change around culture, but do it together and do it we with it eyes open, you know, like let's, let's actually rework this because we both know that it's not going to work now to just keep doing what we were doing. So let's actually work together to find something new. And it's interesting because what, what, we, what we found, we became better as a result of that process because there were many things they were doing better than us. And there were some things we were doing better than them. And us and them became us, right? Mm, they mm -hmm. and we became we. So it's amazing <laughs> because um, it, it worked. And, and, and we've used that tactic as we've acquired some other smaller companies along the way and smaller properties. And we've rolled them into our organization. So it was a, it's, it's a tool that I learned that I know um, that I've, kind of used and it's a methodology that I think is somewhat um, proven to result in um, collective thinking. And when you're merging cultures together, you have to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, these are proud people that came from an organization that had, you know, a really long legacy of success and you yeah. want to benefit from that. You don't want to be, you don't want to have people, you know, you want people to, to work for you, number one. And secondly, you want people to bring their good ideas to you and with you. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, just as we start, I guess, wrapping up, are there any books that for you, you mentioned, you know, uh, 
reading all of those books on your on your journey are there any books that you tend to gift to other people a lot where if you have a new leader coming up or someone you this is the sort of book that you'll often find that you'll be buying and and giving them that's a great question. So I'm looking at my, um, I'm upstairs in my office and I have a bunch of books. I'm in my home office that I have sitting yeah. on my nightstand and I'll just flip through some of my nightstands. I guarantee I have some business books here. So I have, <laughs> I, this is a great book that I read. Never split the difference. Negotiating yeah. if your life depends on it by, by Chris Voss. Great book. Yeah. Um, I've, I have, um, a book here, uh, business event, business adventures by John Brooks. If you haven't read this one, this is a really interesting book because it's a it's it's a New York Times bestseller, um, but it, it really is a story about twelve classic tales from the world of Wall Street. Where and you, you, it's amazing what you can learn from that kind of book. I read um, and I often give people, and you're going to find this kind of surprising, but Malcolm Gladwell, who you, you may I don't know if you know who that is, but he's a yes, kind yeah, of a yeah. social anthropologist. Yeah, and I I like a lot of his books that are interesting because like Outliers is a good one. Yeah. Right. And I, and I tell people, read outliers, read blank, you know, because you're going to, you're going to learn from that. And anytime, you know, I don't necessarily have like one or two books that I say, read this one, although I probably, I'm sure there's a few that I've kind of re repetitively shared with people, but uh, I read, I'm a, like a voracious reader of all. I just, if I can read something that's interesting to me and I can learn from some it, I, I, I do it. And so I'm probably not a, you know, uh, a kind of a one or two book guy. Um, although as I think yeah. about that, maybe there should be like a, you know, maybe I should have like, that, you gave me a thought, John, maybe I should have like a, a marquee <laughs> book that becomes like my, you know, my calling card. Yeah, um, but I, I oftentimes will send people. Yeah. I'll, I'll often give people lots of different books to, that I'll recommend read. And I, I've read sales culture and, you know, winning and characteristics of, of successful people, you know, you name it, Augmentino, you name it, I've read it. So. I don't necessarily have one, but I'm I'm going to think about that. That's a great that's a great that's a great <laughs> takeaway from this conversation. I'm also interested if there are any podcasts. Being such a voracious reader, are there any? It doesn't have to be podcasts, magazines, or the, uh, shows. Uh, any other forms of, uh, I guess, media and and educating yourself that have been particularly meaningful to you or helpful recently. So I'm I'm, I'm new to the podcast world. Um, I, I haven't, I, I haven't been following as many podcasts, I'm just starting to get into it right now. And, um, there's a lot of information out there. Um, and you kind of have to spend some time navigating through with things that pique your interest. Um, so I, that's a forum that I'm not really that familiar with. Um, sure. but I, obviously I read, you know, there's a couple of touch tones, you know, things that I just read on a regular basis. I read the wall street journal. I read yeah. the local business journal in Philadelphia, the, the Philadelphia business journal. I read the local paper, um, not only from the standpoint of kind of what's going on locally, but I also like to read the business section just to become current on what's happening in our world. Um, and then I read some trade magazines, right? So in our world, we have something called WWD, Women's Wear Daily. It's a fashion trade magazine that'll give you some intel on what's going on in the latest fashions. And then I'll read um, some of the trade magazines like Shopping Center Today and things like that to just kind of give you currency in terms of what's happening in your world your area of expertise. Those are all things that I think are kind of core, you know, and, you yes. know, I try to read most of them on a regular basis. I don't necessarily get to all of them. And a lot of the publications are um, available online now. So it's easy to kind of, you know, use your iPad or your phone um, to kind of become current quickly on those things. Um, but th that's kind of where I shake out on it in terms of, you know, the other thing is interesting is that I like, um, I, I'll watch a lot of, sometimes I'll watch TV shows to just catch my fancy and, not necessarily 100% relevant to what we do, but there's a couple of shows on 
in the U.S. on like HBO that I've watched over the last year or so that kind of thought were interesting in terms of sometimes what not to do in leadership. But I don't know. There's a show called There's There's a show called Billions. I don't know if you've seen it or not. It's about the uh, financier world on Wall Street with these like billionaires who run these hedge funds and kind of having yes, three people. Yeah. It's a pretty interesting show. Yeah, and I haven't, I haven't watched it yet, but it's on my list because I love Damien yeah, Lewis. Yeah, it's really I'm good. A big Damien Lewis fan. Yeah. Oh, he's excellent. Yeah, English. He's 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 excellent. And you. Well, you talk about somebody who can kind of adapt to an accent. I mean, you would never, never know that guy's English when you hear him speak. He picks up this whole Wall Street bravado pretty well. And then you have um, – there's another show on TV that I'm watching right now. It's on it's on HBO called Succession, which is – you'll, you'll yes. appreciate this. It's loosely modeled after Rupert Murdoch and his like empire and his family dynamics. And I just ah, find that stuff really I didn't realize so, that. Yeah, okay. That's – oh, I didn't realize Succession had that sort of um, uh, link. That's – yeah, I have to. I I love um, I love watching shows and getting uh, you know, getting ideas from from shows. I mean, one of my favorite shows is The Newsroom. I don't know if you ever watched that. They only did three seasons. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, oh, yep. that was just mm-hmm. fantastic. We're watching The West Wing yeah, right well now, which is some of the events obviously uh, are a while back, but um, that's that's great. But then probably my all time one of my all time favorites is Band of Brothers. I don't know if you've seen that. Series. Oh, fantastic show. Love that. Oh, Love yeah. it. Just and and talk about dynamics and team and what not to do. There's some leaders in there and the and the main sort of character and and the and the leadership yeah. that is just like at yeah. its well, most so, you know, it's raw, right? And you know, that's it's funny when you talk about like okay, so we're in business and you might make a leadership decision. It might be career ending, but it's not gonna be life ending for the most part, yeah. right? But yeah. you think about those things like Band of Brothers, or I remember reading this article. Uh, about these firefighters in California, maybe maybe you remember reading about this. There was this um, outbreak of a fire in California, and there are these group of firefighters. They they're called jumps jump. They're uh, they're jumpers. So they parachute into these areas, and their goal is to, you know, they cut back the brush. They do all these things to try to stem the fires, and they dump. Obviously, there's helicopters dumping water and so forth. And there was this scenario that I was reading about where they had these two groups of jumpers that kind of. Basically, the winds changed and they got caught in this fire, fire, in this fire, awful wildfire, right? And mm. one group, um, the one leader said, look, here's what we should do. We should cut a circle, big circle around where we are because we're surrounded now by the fires and they can't bring the helicopters in to get us out. We're stuck here. So one, one, you know, one leader said, we're, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut this wide circle around this area. We're going to cut as much debris as possible and we're going to get out our they had these like high high uh, high heat um, suits they could put on, and they had these yeah. like they're not really tents, but they're these blankets that they were they were sealed blankets they could lay underneath. And they said we're going to let the fire run over us, and the other platoon leader said absolutely not, man, we're not doing that. We're going to cut our way out of here. We're going to fight our way out of here, and, and we're going to try to get ahead of the fire. And so, long story short, the team that kind of bunkered down and like cut the big circle around and like got underneath the blankets and like let the fire roar over them. They survived the guys that went off to try to get ahead of the fire. They died. And I thought it was an interesting, like, you know, you know, it was interesting, like article about leadership, right? Because this one guy kind of thought through it and like evaluated all the pros and cons and made a decision. And the people that stayed with him lived and the people that went off, you know, kind of avoided their training avoid, you know, like they kind of disregarded their, their basic training and that, and they made a, uh, an irrational decision about like, okay, we're just panicked and we're going to go off in this area and try to cut through this thing. Well, they all died. And so, yeah. you know, again, sometimes you pick up those things too, right? Yeah, that's, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And those, um, 
as uh, the most recent, I just did a podcast with a, a leader here uh, from here in Brisbane called Peter James. And Peter, one of the things he said is the, uh, you know, one of the hardest things about leadership or, or maybe just one of the brutal facts of leadership is that often you're not the one paying for your mistakes. It's others who pay for your mistakes. You know, other people pay for the leader's mistakes. And, and I was like, oh, that's so true. Uh, and there's the ultimate yes, it example is. in that story. Uh, well, did yep, you have any absolutely. final thoughts for any final thoughts for listeners? Well, I would, first of all, Jonah, thank you for your, um, your invitation. I appreciate the questions. Thank you for the prep that you did ahead of this, which again, that's something that I admired about the way you set this up. You sent me a kind of a query of questions you wanted to talk about. So it gave me an opportunity to kind of think about, you know, the content for this discussion. And, um, and I would just say that if you, if you want to be successful in whatever you want to do, do the work, right? There's no shortcuts. I know we hear a thousand times over, but it's just true. It'll come back to haunt you in the long run. I mean, you might have short short term success in whatever you do, but ultimately, if you want to be if you want to have a, a a long arching career with a lot of like wins, then do the work, treat people right, be fair minded, be equitable, you know, be sensitive, be empathetic, or um, go to my earlier conversation, and and you can make a difference. And and ultimately, that's I think that Preet has a team of leaders that kind of think this way, and we're trying to apply our craft in a way that's. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's has humanity to it. And that we can, you know, you know, think about things that are relevant in our culture and our society these days, but also be profitable and make money and do things for our shareholders that are, that are uh, meaningful. Yeah. Well said. Uh, well, thank you to our listeners for, for tuning in. I know there would have been some great content there today for, for you. And don't forget, we also have a couple of other podcasts that you can check out, the John O. White Leadership Podcast, where I just give content around leadership. I, I recently, my most recent episode answers the question, are leaders born or can they be made? And so check that out. And there's also a leadership question of the day where I ask you a different challenging leadership question every day. Uh, but I want to finish today just by uh, saying a massive thank you to Joe. That's just been such a joy to chat about all things leadership. Really appreciated your vulnerability and sharing those stories. And uh, I think it should be an encouragement for leaders out there who, you know, we've all got those things that we that we have as leaders that we look back and there might be some people who'd ruled themselves out of leadership. And I really, I really believe that how you shared today, just so honestly, but also about the hard work element is a wonderful message for people that you can develop your leadership you can like you just need to take the time have the right people around you and open yourself up and be prepared to find out what your blind spots are and you can develop your own leadership to, to lead people really well and I believe you're doing that and it's been uh, it's just been wonderful so thank you so much for coming on Joe thank you appreciate your time Joe and have a great day Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast as much as I did. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there, including our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from all over the world in all different roles, in different industries, answer these seven questions on leadership and leaders give these in-depth answers around how they spend their time, uh, a book that's been significant for them. It's just a gold mine. It's completely free to access. So go to consultclarity.org and look for that. 
We'd also love to interview you about your leadership. I believe your experience, your life, your context means that you have advice on leadership that other leaders can learn from. Yes, you, if you're going, not me. Well, no, I really believe you would have something to add. So if you're looking for a way to give back, it's completely free to get involved. And we would love to interview you through the seven questions on leadership. You just go to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest or Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form and get involved. We have a free resource on our website called the Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57 page ebook, 10 world-class leaders giving their thoughts on leadership and that's completely free. It's available on our homepage consultclarity.org right at the top. So make sure you go and get that and download it today. And we have a free daily email that you can subscribe to. We send this out to over 15,000 leaders from around the world. And uh, it contains the highlights of content from our podcasts, our blogs, um, our books, books we're reading. It's got the best content and it gives you exclusive, limited, early access to our masterclasses, workshops, new products, special offers. It's all for our subscribers. You can go to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe and join 15,000 other leaders. And you know, my gift to you is to work really hard, particularly through the Leadership Conversations podcast. I have been blown away by the quality of the leaders and I'm learning as much as anyone in doing these interviews. So I, I'm having a great time. And my gift to you is to keep lining up the best leaders I can to invest in your leadership. Your gift to me, if you're finding this helpful, there is something that you could do that would help us out massively. And that is to write a review and to leave a rating for our podcast or wherever you're watching or listening to this. I can't tell you how much that helps us out. Also subscribe or follow. It really does make a difference in helping us to help more leaders become everything they're meant to be. Another thing that means a lot to me personally is when I see our community share our content. So if you do share this or any other piece of content on social media, then thank you and, and please do that. And look for me, John O'White, or clarity and tag us in your post. Our team is always looking for posts to engage with from our community. And there's also a chance that we'll share your content uh, to go beyond and share it with our followers. Last of all, you can check out my book. It's called Step Up or Step Out, How to Deal with Difficult People Even If You Hate Conflict. I wrote this book because 50% of the coaching sessions I have with leaders, this topic comes up again and again and again. And it's this idea of how do I have this difficult conversation? How do I lead this person better when I'm finding them difficult? Or in some cases you look and you say, I think I might be leading a difficult person. They're just quite difficult to lead or I'm finding them quite difficult to lead. So there's a three-step process that I unpack in step up or step out. And the amazing thing, and I've literally done this myself and I've heard it anecdotally from other leaders as I've coached them, is that if you follow this process, you will see that person step up and change their behavior or make a decision, which is to step out some of the time. 95% uh, of the time, people will step up or step out in just four weeks. And I stand by that. It's uh, You have to read the book to understand, but uh, I really do believe in it and I've experienced it firsthand. It works. So you can go to Amazon, look up Step Up or Step Out John O'White or store.consultclarity.org forward slash book. 
Well, thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back with a new episode next time of the Leadership Conversations podcast. And I hope today has helped you to take another step towards becoming the leader you're meant to be. See you next time.